Hi, I'm Rajneesh. And I'm Bridget. Welcome to Tata Science. The podcast where reality matters. It's an honor to have Dr. Dri or Andrea Bogomoli. I've known her uh, for several years. Uh, she's a daughter of my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Roberto Bogomoli. And I've been always impressed with all the work that Andrea has been doing. And uh, I'm so excited to bring Andrea and her work to our Terra Science listeners. So Andrea, let's let's start with how uh, who you are. How did you get started in what you're doing? So tell us a little background. Sure. So I feel like that's a very uh, winding road story. <laughs> so I'll try and be brief. Um, so I started doing work with marine mammals and ocean conservation 20 years ago, um, thinking I'd actually just go into environmental education because I love teaching. And I actually thought I would never get into research. That's what, as you said, you know, my, my father does. He's a researcher. And I actually fell in love with that. So I moved to Woods Hole, Massachusetts about 20 years ago from the West Coast and started doing more ocean science work on toxicology and health of marine mammals, specifically seals, and really fell in love with this idea that we could answer all these questions and try and figure out the, the health of animals and our ecosystem. So that led me down a path of working for an organization called the Cape Cod Stranding Network, where we rescued whales, dolphins, seals. And my interest was in the necropsies. Actually, why do these animals die? Why do they get sick? And what can we learn about it to help the living? And that opened up another entire world to me about what we could learn. And it really got me thinking about what are the big you know, factors of what humans are doing? It's not just these small particles or, 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 you know, chemical components we're putting in our ocean, but the biggest threat is actually what we do in our oceans in terms of fisheries. Mm -hmm. And the biggest um, threat to all marine mammals is actually bycatch in fishing gear. So with mm -hmm. all these studies that I was doing, it opened up this other path. So I studied pathology, went back to school, studied pathology to understand more of that component of health but also was working in communities to do stranding response in the Caribbean, on Cape Cod, working with fishermen, and it sort of got me down this other path. And that path has led me to do cooperative research in, in the fishing community and also the health and marine mammal communities. So very winding road, I guess, um, that's led me to really understand what, what binds us all is really the people. Well, and uh, a lot, lot of that work is very important, uh, especially uh, in uh, economies that rely on fishing and, mm -hmm. and the environments that um, can be changed or easily affected uh, by uh, human activity. And uh, you've done a lot of work on seals, by the way. Just I mm -hmm. wanted to mention you have a PhD in pathology, um, animal pathology, and also um, uh, you had masters, but you were also an artist. So it's a, it's a multidisciplinary approach that you bring uh, to this effort. Mm -hmm. So so tell us a little bit about your work with with the fishermen and you know with the with the the issue of the seals where there was a bounty on the seals for decades. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's a really interesting history. And again, I get so excited about the people part of the story. I think as a as a scientist were maybe trained not to dive into that as much as like a natural scientist, but the social science and those reasons and behaviors and 
um, the perceptions that people have really drive so many of these conservation issues. So in the the entirety of the world, there was an era of exploitation here, and especially the East Coast of the United States, where I live on, on Cape Cod, and it's called Cape Cod for a reason. <laughs> so fisheries <laughs> were exploited for a very long time. Um, and in a very short period of time, maybe 100 years, the resources were exploited to the point of just disappearing. And seals were caught in that crossfire of really the scapegoat of trying to explain where the fish all went. It must have been the seals. <laughs> it wasn't the, the fishing pressure. Right? Uh, I see, yeah. Yeah, so bounty, bounty hunts were placed on seals in Massachusetts and Maine in the 1880s. And that was at the peak point of exploitation. And it, if for people that may not know, it was also a high period for whale exploitation, not just fish. Mm. Um, and at that time, the thought was if we got rid of all the seals, the, the fish would come back, which, of course, is a fallacy of, you know, human scapegoating. <laughs> um, but because of those bounty hunt seals were extirpated from this region, from the U.S., mm. the gray seals were pretty much gone. There was there were none left. And it was only after protections were put in place 80 years later that the, the gray seals started to come back again, recolonize from Canada, and the harbor seals were able to, to return slightly. But the legacy of that is this idea that seals are responsible for the demise of fisheries. And today, that same perception, especially for good reason, we see those animals, they do eat fish. Um, they are blamed for the demise of or the not, lack of recovery of a lot of fish species out there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what you're doing is really like both beautiful and just so important because that cannot be an easy job to study that. Like, I imagine you must have to spend a lot of time out there gathering data or, you know, just in harsh conditions, probably, um, compared to, you know, some jobs where you don't have to deal with the, the weather conditions as well to, to just, you know, do the work. Um, but that's so important because someone's got to do it. Otherwise, that, that perception would just carry on, right? Yeah, and I think part of it, though, is the not so much. I think the difficulty, and it's really interesting, isn't necessarily the field conditions. It's the ability mm. to talk to one another. And gotcha. oftentimes with these conflict issues, or we call them like the coexistence issues, which now exist, if we want to solve these problems, these big, huge, complicated, you know, interwoven problems, we have to talk to each other. So I guess the, the more complicated is having these conversations on a moving boat <laughs> there you <go. laughs> while you're trying to collect data. Um, and for me, it's actually a joy. So I do yeah. field work in the middle of winter with seal pups, wow. which is amazing. But then I also find the most satisfaction of just working with commercial fishermen and trying to understand what their day is like. What do they see? Where does this mm -hmm. um, um, interaction or perception of what's actually happening come from? So I can truly understand and listen to the whole story. And I'm obviously maybe biased, right? My upbringing yeah. has been in conservation, not in, in realizing that conservation means there's people in that conversation as well, right? So I have to yeah. take that bias. That's the do hard part. <laughs> do you feel like the the conversation or like are the fishermen in some cases not very cooperative or do you have just all sorts of, you know, interactions with different fishermen? 
Yeah, it's a very good and fair question. Um, a, a bunch of us, I always talk as we, so I always say we, because I feel like I never do anything alone. So I'll always say we. <laughs> <laughs> There's a group of us that just finished a human dimension study on seals and sharks on Cape Cod and the perceptions among voters, tourists, and commercial fishermen. And one of the things that comes out of that is that commercial fishermen as a group are, are very disparate. Like they have very different attitudes from we understand ecosystem value to can we just get rid of them? They're really annoying. <laughs> so there's this really wide breadth of, of um, outward understanding as well as internal experience. And a lot of that comes with age, experience, um, attitudes. So it can be challenging, but also one of the most amazing, rewarding conversations in my day um, is just having a conversation. And the more you can open up to have a conversation rather than not right. the more joy it brings. Right. They, they have to be willing to have that conversation. Exactly. And open to uh, other ideas. But, you know, I'm just thinking about if you, if you were to draw a, a sort of like a picture for us uh, in the uh, New England uh, coastline, let's say, uh, there's, there's Nantucket Island, mm -hmm. there's Nova Scotia up, right? So if you were to think about where these seals are mostly because they have to come to shore. So when you go to deeper ocean, that's not their habitat. Uh, so so uh, so just tell us a little bit about where where all these issues are and where there may be more natural or uh, less human impact. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that idea of, of laying out the story about these animals. So we are still learning and understanding what they're doing. And that's part of the fun of it, I think. So um, harboring gray seals, as well as a few other Arctic species, make their home in what we call the entirety of the Northwest Atlantic. So oftentimes where I live on Cape Cod, we think of them as Cape Cod seals, or if you're in California, they're San Francisco animals, but they right. occupy the entire Northwest Atlantic. And seals can actually go out to sea hundreds of miles. They actually do use oh. the shelves. Yeah, and we're learning that because of the really amazing tagging data, satellite tagging data that's being used. And it's only in the last maybe 10 years that we've been able to put these tags on adult gray seals here in the U.S. and see where they go. So we can tag these animals that maybe came out of a, a rehab situation. Maybe they're just getting better. But a few years ago, we were able to tag adult gray seals and see how far they went. And it's incredible, the ocean use area that they use. And now with impacts in our ocean and use area. So in our coast, there's an increased um, desire to put wind energy throughout our oceans offshore. And there's a question about how these things were, will all kind of mix together, as well as fishery interactions or sand mining and all of these things together, seals are right in, right in. And the reason is because they also have this coastal component and we see them. And that's what makes them so different from all other marine mammals like whales and dolphins is we can see what that impact on them, our impact actually is because we can see them on shore. For better or for mm -hmm. worse, for the seal, <laughs> we see them. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And then the, that's why it's easy to blame them. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly the reason. I always joke that um, people love whales and dolphins, even though they eat more fish, but you don't see it. So I always right. I'm like, there's 100,000 dolphins, but nobody cares. <laughs> there's 50 seals and people are like, it's the end of the world. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
So, so what are some of the efforts that you've been working on? Tell us about that uh, with the community efforts. Mm-hmm. How, how can we solve this problem? Absolutely. So the greatest piece of um, learning <laughs> I've ever obtained, I say, isn't, isn't any of my degrees. It was lessons from fishermen. And it was to just listen, just listen, don't talk, just listen. <laughs> Greatest piece of advice ever. Um, and that's really opened up a world of, of community, a world of understanding that I don't think I would have had otherwise. So from the beginning of, as I was saying in my background of understanding, why do animals get sick? Why do they die? What, what are the impacts? Really understanding that that number one reason are fishery interactions or entanglement um, it started down a road of well, what do we do about it, but how do we understand exactly what's happening without laying blame, but truly understanding what the problem is. So I've been doing research on what we call depredation and bycatch. So depredation is when the animals just eat fish out of nets, um, don't necessarily get caught, but they eat the catch. Um, and bycatch, which is obviously when the animals become entangled, oftentimes right. die or, enta- or, or live with these entanglements. And working on fishing vessels, um, our collaborators have put camera systems on nets to actually see what's happening. And all of this work is led by the fishermen we work with. So the questions that they ask, we translate into the scientific method to figure out how do we answer Mm. this as a hypothesis Mm. so we can get qualitative and quantitative data both to understand what they're interested in. So we've used not just camera systems, but incorporated um, doing genomics. We've looked at bycatch in terms of what do these animals eat and looked at hard parts in the stomachs of the ones that died, as well as the catch on the deck. So we've used stable isotopes. We've used multi-methods to try and understand and get to what are these animals eating, how much, um, and how do they get caught. So we're, we're just throwing everything we can as scientists to help fishermen understand and answer their questions. So that I think is one of the most, I think treasured works of my life is just being able to do that. And that's built up this idea of doing community science. And what that means is really just letting people come together in a room. And I find that to be the other part of this story that's so important. Mm -hmm. We can't do any of this work if we don't come together. And that includes the managers, the fishermen, the marine mammal people, the amazing engineers that create these camera systems and just put everybody in a room. So over the last couple of years, I feel like that's where my um, energy and efforts have been is trying to understand who knows what and get them together to do this, right? To talk together, to share their stories and expertise. So a lot more of the work I'm doing is really just hosting workshops and convenings to make sure the right people are in the room. Wonderful. Okay. But this work you mentioned, this started when you were at Woods Hole. Right? Correct, correct. So this work started when I was at Woods Hole and it's part of the beauty I think of being at the Oceanographic is, you know, I have friends that are fisheries managers, engineers, amazing acousticians, um, oceanographers. And if you all come together and talk, you realize, wow, the power of what we can do to help other people is so extraordinary, mm-hmm. just with that interest or that passion that you have. Right. And just say, like, perhaps if someone's listening to this, that would be interested in looking that up or, or becoming a part of it somewhere on, on the East Coast, how would they be able to find those types of workshops through you? Oh, great question. So one of the other endeavors that 
is very important to me of trying to get people to talk together is putting together this group. It's called the Northwest Atlantic Seal Research Consortium, lovingly called NASARC, not NASCAR, as we tell people. Um, and that's at sealconsortium.org. And there's a list on there of frequently asked questions, some of the work we're doing, links to uh, different organizations and partners. And you can really see the diversity of types of work because cool. it, everybody does have the thing that, you know, gets their spark going. And there's so many interdisciplinary aspects to it that you can see how maybe you plug into that. Um, and there's also just amazing work happening in terms of um, not just the, the scientific research side, but the community aspect. So take a look at the organizations that are partnering together, kind of take a deep dive because it may be more of um, doing, I don't know, doing outreach and you're really good at social media. That's so beneficial to people <laughs> um, and right. where those strengths are with these organizations as well or weaknesses that you can help fill in the gaps for. Wonderful, yeah. I'll, I'll definitely try to link that as well if people are interested. Yeah. And are these recorded so so people can go back and listen to recorded uh, Good question talks. too. So some of them are and some of them are not. So one of the premises of doing community science is trust building. And part of the challenge, especially through this time of virtualness, are recordings which actually people sometimes don't want because it makes people afraid to speak. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the meetings that we have are actually in, with intention, not recorded, mm -hmm. but there are reports. So the reports are available and there's a lot of different talks that I've given on what we talk about. And that could be a link to some of the work that has happened for community science building. Well, that, that, that that's really amazing. So um, I want to change gears just a little bit. And I think it's not that much change. Just <laughs> thinking about, you know, uh, ocean and also land, we face somewhat similar problems. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about ownership or feeling uh, that I own this, this is mine, and I can harvest something from here. And it, it happens both in land and in ocean. Yes. Um, and uh, which is which is there's nothing wrong with that because our economies depend on those things, but I think uh, a lot of those things are translated into consumerism, and consumers mm -hmm. are the driving force for it. Mm -hmm. So I know you and you and I have discussed this before. How can we empower the consumers or inform the consumers in such a way that we cause a change directly because consumer information, consumer action, then drives a change. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's such an important thing to mention, too, is in all the work I do and I talk about fishermen and fisheries, this isn't a, a conflict in the sense of being opposed to sustainably using our resources. That's something that is so essential and so important is how do we sustainably make use of the limited resources we do have. And I think there's so many ways that individuals can. Um, some of them are very innovative and just thinking about where does your food come from? <laughs> Very, you know, in, right. in that innovative way, like, well, let's just take a deeper dive into thinking about where, especially for seafood or, or our ocean mm -hmm. use, um, getting oneself knowledgeable about the seafood distribution system and how completely chaotic it actually is that most right. of the seafood that's produced is exported and not, not present. So there are places right. where 
you may have a choice or may not and advocate for choice, advocate for having something. If you're not local on a coast, at least U.S.-based seafood is a good alternative um, to actually ask for as a consumer. And you have that power as a consumer mm -hmm. to demand that. And that's something I've learned in many ways over the years working with fishermen, especially those that are trying to produce food and also keep it local to feed people. Um, you have the, the voice. All of us have that power to reach out to representatives or, or markets and just ask. You can go to your local supermarket and talk to a manager and say, I'd really like to buy seafood that's from the U.S. or local based. And you have that power. Is there a price difference? Like, I've, I've never even thought about it. Like what? Because I, I don't eat much fish. I'm actually more vegan. But every <laughs> once in a while, I'll do salmon or something. But I've never thought about like, you know, is this imported or, you know, mm -hmm. is there a cost difference between that that fish? Do you know? Or there, there it, can yeah. be, but the value itself is is um, just like everything else in the food system. Is it subsidized or not? What's the real cost of food and what are you willing mm -hmm. to pay and what do you value? So yeah. there are a lot of seafood distribute or distribution locally, say from Alaska. Salmon's a great example, actually where you can get wild caught, sustainably harvested trawled salmon during a very limited season and it could cost you more, um, mm -hmm. but it's actually healthier perhaps for you than right. a raised resource that right. the carbon footprint now is like, it went, it was like Atlantic salmon that went to China to get processed and now is at your supermarket in California. So what is that value as a consumer and the impact on the environment? So one builds communities and allows for production to happen and the other is is kind of disconnected from that system mm -hmm. so those are the that's interesting a way to put it is what is the cost and value and and right. just a dollar amount or is it community building loss i think that's super essential to to like express even because when you talk about consumerism i think about you know my friends and family and how they choose the the different mm -hmm you know, products that they buy. And it's always, you know, have something to do with the price tag. And the there isn't as much thought about the other types of value for, for the products that you're buying. So what you're saying is spot on with what the message needs to be changed when, when talking about, you know, buying your food or produce or any type of product in that case. Uh, the challenge is then just interesting people to do that research themselves, or how do we make it easy enough for them to do it without, you know, being too confused with all the different sources out there? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, absolutely. I know that there's, um, for seafood consumption, there's different um, guidelines, but it's still not mm. enough, right? It sometimes right. is up to us as a consumer to dig deeper. Yeah, but this is why you know Bridget and I've been working on this app Terra Local, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, hopefully you know when when it is, it is if it is used in the way intended, it will provide that information of local uh, not only land based uh, but also sea based food as well. So so consumer in, information and knowledge is very critical. Uh, I completely agree, and uh, I know we always make our decisions based on dollars. But there is so much more uh, to be considered. Now, let's think about another aspect which comes up quite a bit, uh, which is uh, fisheries or, or uh, you know, farm fish farms. And uh, uh, I know I've heard of uh, different 
different types of these these uh, uh, practices. Some are done properly, some are not done properly. Um, and then now we are also expanding such operations, uh, even to harvest kelp or, or other things that we want to grow in the ocean. Um, tell us more about that. <laughs> sure. You- I'll, I'll share at least what, what I know and, and what I'm able to speak of. But there's such opportunity if it's done right. And absolutely, there's the, there's, it's not one size fits all when it comes to aquaculture. And on our coast, there's fortunately this it's beautiful, we have um, shellfish aquaculture right off our waters. And it's actually amazing because it brings people to their food directly, I, I, like where they go to the beach. <laughs> And that mm-hmm. connection to their food is really beautiful. So there's lots of um, oyster farm tours now. There's lots of kelp farm tours now. Very cool. People can connect directly to their food source. Um, and then there are this, you know, just like everything else, is it the the commercialization? Is it the consolidation that we went through with fisheries for these large offshore operations, which I, I'm not really in support of because we're losing the, that connection again. But we do have to feed the world and what is sustainable should be the, the first priority, right? And I'm, I'm the optimist, like that should be it, is how can we do this sustainably healthy and actually include communities in those discussions? Um, so there's that aspect, there's the aquaculture, and then there's finfish, which is more difficult to deal with. Um, and I have to say, I'm biased in that I've been out on the water. I try and work every weekend if I can as a deckhand on the side. I half joke that I'm a fishmonger and a deckhand, and it's more valuable to me sometimes than publishing a scientific paper to truly understand the issue. Wow. From that, I see where my fish comes from. I see these communities being broken and built um, and how important they are and those connections to the sea that they have and that true understanding of the ecosystem that's so important to me. So I will always look to see if we are fishing sustainably, if the management efforts are actually doing that and make a little bit of a ruckus if it's not, um, but also Mm -hmm. support those when they are. So I would say it's good to call it, call it out, but also call it back in. For for when you're looking for signs of this is a non-sustainable practice, what are some of the like major things that you would consider it to be non-sustainable? Good question. Yeah, I think that's it's been really helpful to have my background, say, in pathology, disease, and health. So when you start seeing those things get brought up, especially with thin fish farms, that's where my bells you know, start going off is we know what those implications are to human and animal health if we start distributing antibiotics through through our oceans, if we start increasing, you know, sea, sea lice on fish and getting out into wild populations, changes in the health and actual nutritional condition of wild sourced food, then there's a problem. So that's where my first sort of number one interest comes up. The other is lack and loss of community. So if we don't understand where our food comes from and our harvesters, um, their stories, there's something there too. So we... <laughs> We in New England have seen that um, with this thing that exists here that I learned about over the years um, about cat shares and le- mm-hmm. learning about the permit requirements for fisheries and how that can go awry and how corruption can take place in a very um, well-intended effort to reduce the amount of fishing where we actually saw consolidation of our oceans take place 
and remove that idea of community and actually hurt industries working at small scale. So that's where that person connection, that human dimension mm -hmm. part of the story becomes really important in understanding what is sustainable and what is not as well. Wow, yeah. And have you noticed any changes in uh, uh, you know, disease pressures? Uh, because as we see that there's uh, the, the choices of foods obviously has an impact on pathogens. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen that in our recent history. So uh, uh, what do you say about that from the ocean side? Um, are, are there any uh, microbes or microbial uh, things that, that one should be aware of, especially yeah. in seafood and, you know, fresh seafood? <laughs> yeah, that's where I feel like my other, my other lifetime comes into play. Yeah. Where it's so important to have those yeah. conversations where it, it all is connected. And a lot of this, I think, and a lot of people do think as well um, with the evidence to support it, that as our waters warm and where I am in the Gulf of Maine, it's the fastest warming body of water on the planet. Right. Um, right. We're seeing increases in harmful algal blooms. We're seeing increases in things like Vibrio, um, which are not good for shellfish. If you're a shellfish mm -hmm. producer or eater, <laughs> you don't want mm -hmm. that. Um, and those are things that we're seeing potentially increase because of human activity. Um, there are other factors that are out there that are more, um, I wouldn't say from consuming seafood, but from just interacting with the ocean environment itself. Yeah. And there's, again, another great collaboration working with fishermen, which I absolutely love, was creating um, a marine pathogen guideline with the Massachusetts Department of Health and the Fish Fishermen's um, Partnership, because most physicians don't even know it's in the marine environment. So yeah. if you were to get a cut working on a boat or working with a marine mammal, <laughs> Um, most medical doctors don't know what to look for. So we worked right. to put a guide together that you could right. take to your physician and be like, I have this odd cut. I was interacting with a, a fish with a spine. What bacterial, uh, what bacteria can you culture from this? So those have oh, been wow. important because we're still learning about what's in our waters and those interactions with working waterfront communities often, often just, um, get fixed with or fixed with salt water. <laughs> right. Right. They don't get fixed. <laughs> right. Well, but, but also, you know, the technologies are much more advanced now with 16S yeah. or some sequencing right. efforts. You can probably do a mi microbial profile uh, of different areas and they're not too expensive these days, but yeah. they have to be repeated. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that's where the marine mammals come into play. So, yeah. you know, in all my work, in all my efforts, they really are truly, I believe with all my heart, the sentinels of what's happening in our ocean. They're the closest thing we have to us in our waters that we can look to for guidance and also examples of what we potentially could be exposed to. I often um, <laughs> have to do, because I actually try to do this for myself, is ask people, do you know how much mercury you have, but I can tell you how much the seal has, or do you know oh, wow. your exposure to PCBs are, I can find out in a seal, or what the pathogens are that you have. Oftentimes, even we don't know what's in our own guts that's bothering us, but we right. can find seal. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah. That is really yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask, oh, yeah, go, for go, go for it. No, go for it, Rush. My, my question was going to change the topic. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, we should go there too. Just the last part of this, yeah. I wanted to bring in the impact of agriculture, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. all the uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, all these things that go into the water bodies and uh, ultimately end up in the ocean. And 
with climate change, as you were saying, also toxic algae. So, so, so there are all these things that are that are kind of accumulating more and more and more. So, where do you see that? How how can we change this direction? Mm. That's a tough question. That's a tough one. <laughs> it's, a tough, yeah. it's a tough one, but I think, you know, it's not one I haven't thought about, I think, on a daily basis. Like, I wake up in the morning and be like, what am I going to do today, right? What can I do? What can we do? And part of part of the answer I'd like to leave with that is, well, one, we can do something. Don't feel like we can't, even if it's small steps. Each step is is a step in that battle to be more on the the offense than the defense, I guess, and I think later in my career, what I'm learning is the power of getting involved in civics and understanding mm-hmm. how policy is so important mm-hmm. in the work that we do. Yeah. And again, it's often forgotten as a scientist that you have that power. You also have that responsibility to educate lawmakers and what happens. Mm-hmm. And the more that you can understand how civic engagement works, the more right. adept, more effective one can be to use that science. So I would say it doesn't do anything if it's sitting, you know, back here on a shelf. Um, I have have to get it to the policymakers Mm -hmm. who can actually write off the appropriations or the bill or the law that's going to let climate action take place um, at a level that might have a bigger impact. And it's, it seems so hard, but it's, it's not, it's, you have a voice and every single Mm -hmm. time you use it, you can make change. And I that's also that. coming from the consumer side. That That's right. a really good answer. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of like less about the policy, but more about sharing it with more people is the reason we have Terra Science also, because Raj is the, the science yeah. side of things. And I don't have that science background at all, right? Um, but I can help, you know, post and do different social things to help spread that and hopefully just share different you know aspects like your work andrea and just influence more people that way like that is our goal and you know you can do the same with other people and just trying to spread that message is doing something as well and i think you know maybe we're not the ones to do the policies but we can (laughs) influence people who who can and it's like that chain effect right so exactly yeah Absolutely. Richard, you had a question. So, okay. I wanted to ask about the photo you you shared with us where you're holding this big (laughs) fish. I think it's, it's so cool. Um, I'll, I'll put it up on the screen, but I'll just share it for, for you guys right now to see too. But what type of fish is this? (laughs) It is a sea raven and they are so cool. I just, I think they're really amazing. They've got these huge mouths and um, they're big. So this, <laughs> the story is, so when I'm out fishing, one of the fishermen I adore work with and has been such an amazing collaborator and mm. built this trust between scientists and fishermen is he gill nets for dogfish and skate. And so those are the target catch. But I'm always curious about what else is there is this bycatch. And right. I always thought that having looked at many dead marine mammals that were caused by, you know, gillnet, my thought was, wow, this gear is terrible. It fishes, you get all this bycatch. And turns out what I learned is if you fish properly and you don't let your net soak, you don't have a lot of bycatch. And so every time mm. something would come up, I'd be like, finally, something not a dogfish or a skate. <laughs> mm. And a lot of times 
it would be fish like that, like sea ravens or um, mackerel. Yeah, I've never even heard of that before, but he yeah. looks so wild. <laughs> so it was it was this very, very humbling experience where mm-hmm. I was really afraid. You know, occasionally that's why we were studying seal bycatch. You do get a seal mm-hmm. every now and then. But for the most part, it wasn't that usual. And there's um, a lot of selectivity in the gear itself. That's how it's designed. So, yeah, every time something odd came up, I'd be like, what is this thing? <laughs> Yeah, that is wild. Yeah. That's such a cool photo, too. Thanks for <laughs> yeah, sharing that one with us. And it sounds like so much fun, just that work, mm-hmm. you know, being out there like that and, and engaging with all this. Uh, it just yeah. sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. 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 I remember um, when when I was younger, they brought our school to, like, the, uh, the Channel Islands for a trip, mm-hmm. and we got to do the snorkeling and that was like one of my first times actually like seeing so much sea life and it is just like no other, you know, something that I feel like more people should try if they've never done that before to go somewhere like some, you know, islands that's off the coast of California, but Mm -hmm. to have any experience of that makes you appreciate it more. And, you know, some, some of those people are going to follow that and, you know, get involved in it and want to conserve it um, just because they, you know, realize that those things are out there and it's, you know, a really much wider world than, you know, just what you see on land too. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, I joke about it, but it's not really a joke. Human Homo sapiens is just one species. Yeah. Yeah. Planet is full of billions of species. Right. And we, we need to go out there and see how they live and appreciate uh, and respect their habitats. And, uh, you know, uh, just like we have a right to uh, seek our food, each of those also have the right to seek their food. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. And that's, it's so funny that you say that too, because that seems to be um, in part of that education and what you can bring to people is seeing that there's, as you know, you're saying, like there's the arts component of, of how do you bring world so that we do feel connected and that we do have this empathy and understanding that it's not just us in the world it's these other creatures or or plants <laughs> that need to thrive so that we can actually do that same thing and have that enjoyment from it too that I know we all need to eat and survive and sustain ourselves but there's ways to also think of it as joy and the wonder of, of what life actually is and the more mm-hmm. you see it, see it and are connected to it, the more I think people can see it for themselves and actually take action, understand those connections, think about mm-hmm. the value of where your food came from. But yeah, being able to see that and how you explained it to somebody who hasn't is, is so important. Mm-hmm. And I like that you mentioned art as well. You have a degree, I believe, also in like studio art, if I'm not wrong. Um, how do you feel that you you bring together that like artistic side of you and the biology side and, and bring those two together? I love that question. So I used to think when I first started, it was the, the physical process of doing art, like creating a visual um, understanding. So when I began, <laughs> I was doing science illustration and I thought, well, this is it. I'm going to either do science or do science illustration, one of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started doing stuff um, like illustrating field guides or how does this muscle look in a fish? I did that for a friend for a publication. And then I started really, truly understanding it's how I do the science and how I communicate it in a more illustrative way. 
Um, and how does that look or, or sound to people as well? And I, I was laughing because one of the conversations I remember having early on with one of my wonderful mentors was just sitting in, in this conversation of, she said, I'm so linear and you are not. And it's actually a good thing of how we can see the world. And that always stood out to me of, yeah, when I'm drawing, I, I'm not linear about things. I have a, a method or a, a result maybe I want to see, but it's the process itself that right. gets me to the end. It's not a linear path. And that's how I think I've always done my science connections is how can you get others to see what you see? And that's mm -hmm. the artistic part I think I bring in more than the physical, actual, you know, painting or drawing now. Right, yeah. um, but it's still fun. And I think in a, a day to day with students, it's really fun trying to explain processes or, or physiology or being able to draw it out and explain yeah. it. I use that a lot on a on a constant basis. Good, yeah. Um, and then for my own enjoyment, I think I sit with my mm -hmm. journal and write and just see the world for what it is often. So that part I bring to myself. So, so great. I love that. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I think especially uh, being able to express how you're thinking um, of even science or technical aspects mm -hmm. in an art form, uh, that, that can be really powerful. Uh, to bring the message through. And uh, there, there are many magazines or I mean, journals, I think National Geographic, and uh, they've been uh, kind of doing that, bringing videos, yeah. bringing all these experiences out to people. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. We need more of that. Yeah, science so, communication. Uh, I think that's the yeah. um, way, way back in the day when I was doing it. It, to me, was a very visual type of communication. And I feel like, you know, there's no limit now to what that means, whether it's journalism, writing, um, art form, video, sound, podcasts, right? It's it's understanding how to translate the world to people in the way they can understand. Yeah. Well said. Well, great. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's great. Well, uh, this has been an amazing yeah. conversation. And uh, I learned a lot about uh, SEALs <laughs> and the relationships. Uh and so, so thank you so much, Andrea. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was a pleasure to have you on. Oh, thank you, Andrea. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. Letting me get excited about things I'm, I'm passionate about in this very uh, interdisciplinary world of mine. <laughs> it's absolutely been a pleasure. And I think this will be a really interesting, you know, topic for people to hear about as well. You know, we try to bring all sorts of topics. And I think this is one of those that, you know, you can see in that image too. It's just something completely different and really interesting. So thank you for, for sharing that. And if you guys are listening, please make sure to give this episode a like. Uh, please subscribe, hit the notification bell. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, Apple, and YouTube, and we'll see you in the next one. Thank you. You've been watching Terra Science, the podcast where reality matters. We discuss food, planet, consciousness, the issues that we face, and the solutions that can be offered. And we discuss with uh, wonderful guests who are leading the way in finding these solutions. Don't forget to like and subscribe and hit that notification bell.